it doesn't feel like a big piece of debt. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt like my car loan felt like debt. I felt like, mm-hmm. you know, my, you know, obviously my tiny little student loan felt like debt. Um, but it doesn't really feel like debt. Um, maybe just cause we're so used to renting and that's, mm. you know, comparable. I don't know. From Rise Up Financial, it's This American Wallet, a show where we anonymously interview people from all walks of life about how they make, save, and spend their money. I'm your host, Annalise Brethauer. I'm a certified financial planner professional on a mission to break the taboo of talking about money. As a reminder, nothing discussed on this episode should be considered advice of any kind. Please consult the appropriate financial professional about your specific situation. Now back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. I am sitting here with a collegiate track and field coach. So we're going to learn all about um, what it means to be on a track team in college, which I was not. So I have a lot to learn. Uh, Thanks so much for being here with us. Appreciate you coming on the podcast and being vulnerable about how you make, save, and spend your money. Awesome. Thanks for having me. This is kind of cool. So let's just jump right in and give us a little bit of background about you, your career as a track and field coach, um, and how'd you get there? Sure. Yeah. So I started, I was obviously a, a collegiate track and field athlete myself um, at a pretty high level. And I, my first job out of college had nothing to do with track. I was an event coordinator, hmm. worked at a nonprofit, um, and kind of was going in the, in the direction of development associate, fundraising, um, things like that, and kind of fell into coaching backwards. Um, you know, get, got a, a small part-time coaching um, gig at a community college. And I had always coached um, track. I had coached track since I was 15, um, at the club level, um, with Mm. middle schoolers, high schoolers, and just kind of, it always kind of fell into my lap, something that I was always kind of pursuing. It was a passion of mine and I got paid to do it, you know, at a, at a small scale. And then it kind of started evolving into something bigger. So I, you know, I worked at a, a, a community college for two years and then it was kind of like, okay, how do I make this legit? How do I make this real? Um, I ended up taking a GA position on the East Coast, uh, moved out there. What's a GA? A GA is a graduate assistant. So it's like similar to, um, you know, maybe a teaching assistant. If you were teaching undergrad classes, um, I was coaching and then getting my grad school paid for. So it was kind of a backup plan of, okay, I'm going to pursue this coaching thing. Here's an opportunity to coach, but here's an opportunity to also get my MBA for free. Um, so I went that direction, ended up getting, before I even finished my MBA, got a full-time position as a paid, um, coach on the East coast. And then I ended up, um, finishing my master's while being full-time, um, at that college and then moved back to, um, where I was from in Oregon and, you know, I'm still a, a college coach and, um, have found some success, uh, recently. So it's been kind of an interesting journey, you know, got my master's as kind of part of that journey as a backup plan, but also kind of proved that uh, it definitely helps having your master's in the coaching world. Um, A lot of schools won't look at you for a full time position unless you have that master's. Hmm. Um, You know, I, I've coached for a long time now and, you know, it's just starting to really pay off financially, I guess. Um, You know, the coaching world is something that yeah, it doesn't pay a lot. And the the positions that actually pay a lot are hard to get. Um, 
and I'm kind of in, in the middle, you know, I am full time, I have benefits, I have um, kind of comparable to a teacher salary. Um, and so I kind of feel like I, in some sense, I finally made it. <laughs> yeah. Are you willing to share what your salary is and kind of your progression from how much you got paid as a part-time coach um, yeah. into a full-time and now being head of the team? Yeah. So when I first started at the JUCO, I got, um, I guess they call it a stipend. So I was paid, I think my first year, just a thousand dollars for the season. My second year, I think I was up to 2000. Um, and that was, you know, the time commitment was about uh, two hours, three days a week. Um, and then mm. weekend track meets are about anywhere from six to eight, probably not 10 hours unless travel time was kind of far away. Um, so it's a kind of a, a time commitment. Um, the GA position, um, it was, there's definitely some really good paying GA positions and some really bad paying GA positions. And mm. I kind of got a middle of the road one. Um, I got free housing. I got free meals on campus. Um, I got free grad school. Um, and they gave me $200 a month. <laughs> so not was, a lot to live on. No, but you know, I didn't have undergrad student loans, which definitely helps you out. Um, and then once you have free housing and free, you know, free utilities with the housing and free meals, um, yeah, I was just kind of frugal with that $200 and, um, didn't really, um, spend much of that. I ended up doing tons of private coaching when I was in the East coast, I was making, Oh, I don't know, four or $500 a month. Cause I was charging like $80 an hour. People like to pay a lot for private coaching out there. Sure. Okay. Okay. So you're, did you have savings as you were walking into this phase of life or was, were you literally living the $200 paycheck to the $200 paycheck making ends meet with private coaching? Oh, it was, yeah, no, there was no savings in all of this. It was a gamble. It was a, um, you know, take this leap of faith, you know, kind of in the back of my head, I was kind of like, I have my, my MBA, I'm going to have my MBA at the end of this mm -hmm. to fall back on. Um, it's not only a gamble for a career path that's a little un unconventional, but it's a gamble for um, a free graduate program too. Mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, that allowed me to justify it in my head, but it was definitely like, okay, I don't have, if something goes wrong, I don't have a lot of money. You know, I was driving a, an old beat up uh, Ford Focus wagon, um, you know, that needed repairs every once in a while. I mean, there was definitely little things that it was very stressful and um, I ended up working part-time at Starbucks while doing private coaching, um, while doing my MBA, while coaching, while doing all of that, just to, to make sure that I wasn't, you know, completely drowning. But yeah, I mean, sometimes when you take a leap of faith and you just work really hard, it, it kind of works out. Um, you know, after the GA position that I only did for a year, I ended up getting a salary position um, at 38,000. So again, not a lot of money, especially on the East coast, um, but more than $200 a month, way more than $200 a month. Oh, I was living large at that point. <laughs> I was really good at being frugal at that point too. Yeah. Um, and I ended up moving to another city that was a little bit North of where I was living in Pennsylvania. Um, I lived in a very bad part of town, <laughs> Uh, to make ends meet. Um, I, I lived in this little tiny apartment complex. It was a fourplex and the um, city school buses ran out of this weird 
broken, I don't even, this weird building across the street, they would park them along the railroad tracks. Um, and there was foreclosed houses on both sides of me and across the street um, surrounding the school bus um, operating place. Um, the street was pretty much a ghost town and I lived in this little tiny, really cheap apartment um, to make that one work and continued to get my MBA um, with a salaried position. That was nice. Um, continued to coach. And then when I moved to the back to the West Coast, um, I was very um, stubborn with my salary range um, mm. and would not budge from the top part of that. And, you know, it was about a $10,000 range. Um, you know, I think it was 32000 to 42000 And I was like, I want forty-four. And they're like, we can't do that. And I go, I want 44. I asked four times, actually. <laughs> um, I knew I was a front runner for the position. I knew that I had a little bit of bargaining power. Um, and we settled in 42 because that was the top part of the salary range. And I've been working there three years. So, you know, because of, um, I don't know what you call it, the just raise every year. I'm at 44,000 now, mm -hmm. which feels very comfortable after mm -hmm. you're used to living off of nothing. Yeah. Yeah, I think that takes a lot of guts to to ask, especially as females. Oh, you know, absolutely. we're not really taught to go yeah. in and ask for more money when they're saying the top of the range is 42 and you're asking four times for 44 um, and kind of having that confidence to, to know that you're worth that. Uh, talk, talk to me more about that. Was that intuitive to you? Did you get advice from someone? Where did that come from? Um, a little bit intuitive, a little bit of, you know, just reading how to be a successful female in a world of men. Mm. Um, you know, it's, I think the real world is like that a little bit. And then the coaching world on top of that is even more like that. Um, you know, very analytically, I was like, okay, I'm making 38,000. Um, you know, income tax is higher in Oregon than it is in Pennsylvania. So I just straight up told them I need to make this much money in order for even to be considered a raise. Otherwise, mm -hmm. I'm not actually getting a raise um, because income tax is about half of, I, th I think it was a, oh gosh, that I did that a while ago, but it's about half in Pennsylvania as it is in Oregon, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I, and then also part of coaching is um, talking and negotiating, you know, part of recruiting is talking and negotiating. Um, you have to talk finances with families. You have to talk finances with student athletes. Um, you have to kind of be comfortable with those conversations uh, because you're telling student athletes that, um, you know, not only are you going to be a good coach for them, but it's going to be a good institution, a good school for them for X, Y, Z reasons. And so I think just having those open, honest conversations um, from the coaching world kind of gave me the confidence to say, okay, like, this is what I'm worth. This is what I, what I want. And um, I'm going to kind of be stubborn about it because I've had athletes be stubborn about what scholarship money they want sometimes. And I think that I don't take that as a disrespectful thing. I think I take that as a, you know, this is going to be somebody who's going to work hard because they know their worth. So mm -hmm. I like that. I like that a lot. So talk to us more about this recruiting piece and talking to other families about <clears throat> finances and the, kind of one of the reasons I started this podcast was because talking about money is such a taboo. Yeah. So as somebody who's not only selling your leadership of your team, but also the school, how do you have those conversations? It's very case-by-case -case basis. Um, you'll have some athletes who it will never come up in conversation. 
Um, you'll have some athletes, the first thing they ask you is how much scholarship money do I get? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think there's any wrong way to go about that. Um, I think it's different for every family. It's different for every student. Um, you know, I have athletes who come from very wealthy backgrounds and they're looking for the best bang for their buck. And they end up at, at my university because we are very, very cheap. Um, we're a very cheap institution. Um, so it is a really good bang for your buck. And so, you know, because they're looking for that bargain, they're not going to budge off the, you know, what scholarship money they want, regardless of the fact that they come from money. Do you have student loans yourself? And how, how are you managing your monthly finances? You know, you're, you're getting a lot of this, um, these conversations are happening with your, mm-hmm. your athletes, um, and you're having to walk them through it. How do you do it? Yeah, totally. So, I mean, I was definitely very fortunate. Um, so in my undergrad, I had a, a chunk of scholarship for a couple of years um, and then it kind of got pulled away from me because uh, I wasn't performing as an athlete, at least to the standards that I was supposed to. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents definitely helped me out with my undergrad. Um, I know not everybody's in that situation to have that, but I did graduate undergrad debt-free. Um, so obviously that opens up a lot of doors financially to be able to do things that y- you want to do. You know, I, if I had student debt, I would not have been on the East coast. That would not have been a smart decision. That would have been, you know, I mean, I don't know what I, what direction I would have gone in, but I don't think it would have been, um, I wouldn't have been as free to do things that I wanted to pursue like coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as grad school goes, I finished it almost debt free. Um, I ended up borrowing about $2,000 because I had one class that I, they only covered, so the, the school I was working for, they would only cover classes, um, hundred percent tuition during the regular school year. So you don't get, you didn't get summer classes for free. Mm. And I kind of knew I was going to take this other job or wanted to pursue another job. And so if I hadn't gotten my, that last class done over the summer, I wouldn't have finished my MBA. So mm. I did pay for my last class. Um. And that's, you know, I think it was $2,400 for the one class over the summer. So, and then how did you structure repayment? Are you, are you still repaying it? Was that, did that become a priority after? How how have you thought about that student loan? Yeah. So that was a priority to pay off. So I got that paid off pretty quickly. Um, I think it took me about maybe six months to pay off. Um, And then, you know, as far as other bills, you know, I've got, I don't have a lot of bills. I, um, you know, I don't have any student loan debt at this point. I don't have, um, you know, I don't have a car loan anymore, which is awesome. I actually paid my car off. Um, I think it was three weeks ago, a month ago. It was right when we had a snowstorm, had 14 inches and I got stuck in my driveway. So the irony was uh, pretty <laughs> great. I called in my last payment, was stoked, was about to go to work. And I was like, oh, got to shovel my driveway. Just tried to shovel my driveway and then got stuck halfway between my driveway and my street. Oh, no. <laughs> I had to call one of my coworkers to uh, pick me up for work because I couldn't get out of my driveway. You're like, well, um, the good news is this car is now mine and right. only mine. The bad news is it's not going anywhere very quickly. But that's funny. Absolutely. Uh, so I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about your relationship with money and what money was like for you growing up. Yeah. So my relationship with money, I guess, I don't know exactly what that means, but um, you know, I grew up in a family that was just kind of middle of the road. 
Um, you know, we spent a lot of money on sports and like traveling for sports. And there was, you know, never kind of a limit to what I could accomplish um, kind of in that realm. Um, I always had a job. I've had a job since I was 15. I worked in a daycare. I worked in a hot dog stand in Enchanted Forest. I worked at a Thai restaurant. I worked at um, as manual labor for the state. I worked in a winery. I worked in um, so many different places. So like having, you know, I, I coached since I was 15 too, the kids program. Um, I've always had kind of a steady income. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was younger, I was so dumb with that income. <laughs> Tell us more about that. Oh my gosh. I got my nails done like every two weeks. <laughs> Oh my gosh. And like the expensive ones, like acrylic, you know, whatever. And I used to buy all these designer jeans and I was outfitted completely by like the newest Nike gear. And my parents kind of let me just spend my money however I wanted to, cause it wasn't theirs and they weren't going to tell me what to do with it. And, um, you know, I spent a lot of money on gas, um, in high school. I would always drive all kinds of places to the beach, to Portland, to, um, you know, we, we would take little mini road trips everywhere. So I definitely spent a lot of money on gas, but, um, so I've always, you know, want, I've always spent a lot of money, but I've always been able to like make a lot of money. And I think, um, I don't know, I guess that's, that was my younger relationship with, with money. Yeah. When I, when I asked you the question, what, what can money do for you? What comes up? What? To me, it just opens up um, possibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I wasn't student debt-free, I would not have gone to the East Coast. Um, mm-hmm. If I was not student debt-free, I don't know if I'd be a coach. I don't think I would have had the um, security to pursue a career that doesn't always work out for everyone. You know, and I, I think I'm a great coach too, don't get me wrong, but I don't think my coaching Um, my superior skills and coaching has really got me to where I am. I think it's my ability to see the big picture and be able to, um, do everything else too. Yeah. And that this lends perfect to my next question, which is coming back to you and and how you manage your finances. What are, what are the strategies you use? How, how do you allocate your income that's coming in each month and how are you prioritizing what expenses are, of course, necessary and what expenses, um, are there to kind of fulfill your life? Totally. Um, yeah, good question. I probably am not as good at, um, I don't know, budgeting as I should be. Right. I just am in penny pincher mode and spending mode. And I feel like (laughs) because I, you know, I penny pinch when I'm in season because I, I don't have time to, you know, spend money, go shopping, have fun, really, from January till May, I'm on like lockdown. Mm -hmm. So I'm like already in saving mode, um, which is kind of nice. You know, there's, there's some, some months where I spend no more than like, there was one month I spent $230, not including, you know, that was my only expenses besides utilities and my mortgage. Like, that's it. So food, gas, that was just $230. I have two savings accounts. Um, one I look at often, one I don't. Um, I have one credit card. It fluctuates up and down. Um, for the most part, I pay it off. Sometimes I'm not great and I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to let that roll over to the next month. Um, 
I have two retirement, or I think I have three retirement plans. So I think that's good. Um, from your jobs? Yeah, I have one that rolled over from my job in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. um, they had a six, I put 6% in, they matched 6%. Great. Um, I started my own, so I have a Roth IRA that I put money into. Great. Um, right now, I think I'm only putting like $200 in, two, or I think $230. Um, so not as much as I should. Well, I, it's funny that, that you say that because I think what's important about saving is saving early and saving often. You know, I mm -hmm. say this quite a bit. Um, and it's not necessarily exactly about the dollar amount because as you continue to make more yeah. and it stays top of mind, you'll increase that. But yeah. having that habit and having that comfort level with saving and for those of you who aren't familiar with the Roth IRA, um, it's a retirement account that you can start outside of your employer where you put in after-tax money. So it's money that has already been taxed by the government. You can put it in this Roth IRA account, invest it, and so long as you uh, follow the rules, it can grow tax-free. So you have to wait till you're at least 59 and a half right now to take the money out. Um, but it's a really great way to save for retirement. And it, it's a diversifier because your 401k or your 403b, probably in your case, um, that's pre-tax money. So when you're retired and you're taking that money out, you have to pay the government taxes. So um, really smart of you to start a Roth um, and get that going. So I, I wouldn't worry about uh, feeling the need to to increase that until it's until it's comfortable, you know your your yeah. money should be used for what is most nourishing for you. Well, and then I so my third retirement is and and this is where I don't really understand it. I guess is because I have an organ um, like pension plan or um, I don't even know what they call it. Um, Are you a state employee? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So okay. The, or, have, the Oregon PERS. They, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have the PERS account. So. And I think that's independent of what I do. And from what I understand, my school puts in a certain amount and then the state like matches it, but then you don't, it works differently. I, I, that's where I'm confused. Yeah. So. I won't, I won't get too far into the weeds here, but essentially, um, and I think this is probably true for most government employees, people that work for the state. Uh, there's two parts of your retirement plan within working for the state. So there's one where you're contributing Mm -hmm. and there's another where your employer is contributing. Yes. So it can be a little bit confusing, but uh, what, what you need to know is put as much as you can in there. Make sure you're getting all of the match percentages and opportunities um, and make sure it's invested. So usually they pick a, what they call like an age-based investment option where when you're younger, it's more aggressive. And as you get older, it will get more conservative. Gotcha. No. Yeah, I probably should do more research on that one. I don't know how that one works very well. That's so I know there's some stuff in it, and I know that um, it's doing, it's growing, but I don't really know what it's doing. <laughs> That's okay. That's what financial planners are here for, to, to, to educate and explain what all of these things do. Um, so... I want to circle back because you said something that I want to ask more about um, when you said usually you pay off your credit card every month, but some months you roll over a balance to the next month. Two, yeah. Two-fold question there. One, 
how often are you checking your credit card balance? Is this something that you go to pay it and it's a, it's a surprise? Um, or is it, you're like, okay, I know I'm not going to be able to afford this, but talk to us about your thought process there. And then second question along those same lines is when you do roll over a balance, what goes through your mind the next month to make sure that you're able to pay it all off? Yeah, no, I think, you know, I, I check it almost every day. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm like, I'm very aware of what's on there, what I need to do, um, you know, how much is probably going to roll over. I think the part that gets um, sometimes either out of hand or a little bit confusing is when I do purchases for work. So like, you know, if we have a hotel block or um, I don't put the airlines on there, um, I could end up with like a $3,000 charge that I'm getting reimbursed for. Mm. Um, which is great because then I get some points and um, it allows me to, you know, get a little tiny bit of, you know, side cash or whatever. But um, it, I could have, you know, I've had upwards of $10,000 charged that I'm getting reimbursed for. It's, you know, it's not. And so then my personal um, pot, I guess you would say, um, I'm a little more unaware of what that is. <laughs> Mm. Um, and so that's where, you know, maybe I should have, you know, two different cards so that it's, um, it's more black and white. I just haven't done that. Um, but I think I'm bad at saying no, you know, when something sounds fun, I just go do it. And sometimes, you know, I'm like, well, it's points. So I'm going to put it on my card and then I'm, Oh, I got, you know, this is, um, I, uh, didn't have great spending habits this month. Like you got to reel it back, check yourself a little bit. And, 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 um, yeah, then I just try to kind of buckle it up next month or the next couple of weeks um, so that I can pay that off. And you mentioned having a mortgage. So um, yep. I'm presuming that, that you bought a house. How, how did you go about making that decision to buy a house? How did you go about saving um, for a down payment? And how, how's it, how's that been for you? Yeah. So very, very stressful. Um, when I first started making that decision, um, you know, it was one of those things where I, you know, I mentioned earlier that I feel like I'm super wealthy because I'm making so much more money than I've ever made, but I, in the grand scheme of things, you know, not a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I kind of had a good cushion of savings. Um, and I was like, saw it more buying a house more as an investment. Um, opportunity than just this is something I want to do and I'm ready for a house. Um, I had a roommate. Um, she pays over half my mortgage, which is really makes me comfortable and confident. Um, allows me to have, you know, free up extra cash or put more into savings or, um, or whatnot. But, you know, the first plunge of buying that house is terrifying. Um, absolutely terrifying. You know, here I am having more money than I've ever had and I'm putting it into something that feels very unknown. Mm-hmm. You know, of course the inspection came back fine. Um, they ended up pulling in an engineer to check, you know, the foundation cause I live in a, it's a very old house. Um, you know, just to double check cross the T's dot the I's everything looks good. Um, I bought my, so I, the house was listed. I got a realtor. I got a mortgage broker. I viewed the house twice in four days and I put an offer in on the fifth day. Wow. Um, and that was a little bit of a risk taker. Uh, yeah, you could, I guess it was terrifying. And then of course with that came some panic attacks and some, um, just freaking out. And, um, with the, 
I can't remember the exact name of it. I had a new home buyer's loan. Um, so I didn't have to put 20% down. Um, so I, I think I put, well, I put $6,000 down. Um, and then the seller and, um, paid for the closing costs. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't have to pay that part too, which was nice. Um, but yeah, all of a sudden, you know, I felt like I completely dented my savings. I had this house that I was like, what if, you know, there's a fire or an earthquake and it's just gone. Or, you know, I was having all these, you know, panic anxiety of having this huge, um, financial, the burden in some sense that I've never had or never thought about. And it was absolutely terrifying. And I, I don't think I would have taken the plunge if I didn't have a roommate. Um, you know, somebody I got, I get along with great. She's amazing. Um, you know, she is, um, very steady and wanting to stay here for a while. So I knew I was going to have her for at least a couple of years, um, which made me feel more confident. Um, obviously you don't, always know with roommate, they can move out any time, you know, things like that. But I don't think I would have taken the plunge without her. I don't think I would have felt confident enough to, um, financially to take on that entire mortgage. Um, but at the same time, I am so thankful. I have a home. Um, it's adorable. It's cute. Um, nothing's gone wrong with it yet. Knock on wood. Um, well, actually besides the we had a plumbing prog- problem like two months after living here. Turned out it was the city though. The city sewage backed up into my basement. Um, oh. Yeah, there was about two or three inches of sewage water in my basement, but it was not my fault, not my house's fault. It was the city's fault and they cleaned the whole thing and my basement was cleaner after than before. So, Okay, so it worked out uh, okay. Yeah, it worked out okay. Um, actually, and Two or three weeks ago, my entire street flooded because, um, or not, yeah, when we got that 14 inches of snow in one day, um, it melted. There's flooding all over the city. And the way my house is positioned, um, my whole street was flooding. They tore up the whole road. They literally took a tractor and dug a trench in the street so the houses wouldn't get flooded because the, the flooding in the river was like the whole width of the street. Um, yeah. And it perfectly like missed my house. I'm like, I can't tell you how blessed I am. Uh, in some of these situations, you know, I could end up with a huge sewage problem. That was my financial burden or, you know, a lot of the houses, like my neighbor's house, literally right next door, the basement was flooded and Mm -hmm. mine was fine. You know? So I think there's a lot of scare with financial things that could go wrong with the house. And I've just been really, really lucky. Um, but it is something to think about. Yeah. So when you were talking about the things that were, were making you feel anxious when purchasing the house, do you have homeowner's insurance? Yes. Okay, good. Just wanted to make sure we check that one, that one off. I thought it was uh, illegal not to have homeowner's insurance. Doesn't mean that some people don't follow. Oh, no, I have homeowner's insurance. Good, good. So if it, if you're, if it burns down for some reason, you will, will be okay. Your investment oh, will. Well, yeah, the insurance company will give you a payout so you can rebuild it. Uh, there was some. There was a question I had that totally just escaped my mind. Oh, so you said you put six thousand dollars down on the house. How how much was the purchase price? Uh, one. I think it was one fifty eight. One hundred fifty eight thousand. Yes. 
Okay. I just want to clarify that because some people listening probably houses are not that inexpensive. That is true. Where, yes. where, they, where they live. I live in a little rural town, so in my mind, um, renting here is actually quite expensive, and that was another reason to kind of take that plunge. Yeah. Um, you know, I was renting for, I was paying five fifty a month renting, and now I pay, I think it's like four sixty or four ninety, um, for my half of the mortgage, and then my roommate's rent is the other half. So. Mm, and is your is your mortgage payment include property taxes and insurance? It's all included, yeah. So okay. property tax, yeah. uh, mortgage insurance, um, and then I have what the, what's that one insurance called when you didn't put twenty percent down? Uh, yeah, mortgage insurance. Oh, okay, that one. So you have you have mortgage insurance, homeowners insurance, oh, and yeah. property taxes all looped in together. It's all bundled. It's all bundled. All right. So so you took out. A mortgage of let's see, I'm doing the math. One fifty-eight minus six, so one hundred fifty-two thousand or yeah. so. And what was your interest rate? Uh, Three point eight. Okay. Yeah. 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 I think that's good. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all relative, of course, based on when you took out your mortgage. But um, yeah, anything under four, I think, you know, is is what they would consider cheap as far as interest rates go for mortgages. So as we're wrapping up here, I just have a couple more questions um, and one that you may have already touched on, but what's been your proudest financial decision? Um, definitely my house, because I think that's something that not everybody's in a position to do. And it's something that I love my house. My house is my, I've never, um, you know, when you rent for so long and you jump around all these places and you know, a college apartment is not, it's a college apartment, you know, owning a home is like a whole new level of security. And, mm. um, that's definitely, um, yeah, that's my proudest moment for sure. Yeah. I'm interested because it, uh, on one side of things, you talked about the mortgage feeling heavy, you know, scary, yeah. um, anxiety producing. And on the other side, having the home feeling so secure, yeah, that's interesting that you put it that way. I don't know. I guess um, that's a good question. I don't know. I, I think that, you know, I'm still kind of waiting for something to go wrong with it because everybody says something will. Um, and that's scary. <laughs> but yeah. at the same time, nothing has and everything's been okay. And it feels like home and it, it feels like an anchor and it feels um, feels nice, you know, it, um, but it doesn't really feel like debt, um, maybe just cause we're so used to renting and that's, mm. you know, comparable. I don't know. Sure. Yeah. I, I'm thinking about Marie Kondo and, um, oh, I'm forgetting the name of it, but you know, her, her TV show where she goes into a house and, and thanks, thanks the house for the roof over your head. And have you seen that? Uh -uh. Oh, okay. Well, then I'm going off on a track that's not going to um, take us anywhere interesting. But essentially, I think what I'm hearing from you is that, that having that roof over your head that's yours, your place to call home, you called it an anchor, is really valuable yeah. for you. It's It's kind of one of those things that keeps you grounded and makes you feel nourished. And so um, that's really what, what you're looking for in the highest and best use of, of your money your income. Yeah. So that's great. What questions do you have for me? 
Um, good question. I don't know. I feel like, um, I guess what advice would you offer me knowing about, you know, what I've told you about my finances? Like what should I be trying to do or not doing or I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to caveat this as I always do by saying, don't take this at home as advice and always talk to your financial professional. But um, with that said, you're absolutely on the right track. I think um, you kind of know intuitively that maybe you should have a separate card, credit card for your school expenses. Um, And maybe that becomes a conversation talking with the school if they're willing to to give you a card. I don't know if that's even an option. They don't do individual cards. We have a department card. So mm-hmm. we either put it on the department card and it's out of our hands or it's on our personal card and we get reimbursed for it. So yeah, that's already been a conversation. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah and, I, and I totally get, you know, if you're putting thousands of dollars of, of work expenses on your personal card and saying, okay, I like those points. Um, mm-hmm. On the other hand, it's, it's making it a little bit difficult for you to manage yeah. Um, your income and your expenses. And so that's just something to think about. And maybe there's a creative solution um, for how to do that. I use um, financial planning software, but you can also use mint.com. And basically, I mean, it would be a new habit. So um, that's up to you how, how comfortable you are, but saying, okay, school expenses this way, personal expenses that way, um, so that you can keep saving towards some of these goals. I think you have so many uh, exciting visions for your life and w- what's coming up. Um, and I'll go back to saving early and often. So, yeah, for, yeah I, I think it's great that you have a Roth IRA, that you're contributing um, to your employer retirement accounts too. Don't look at them right now. <laughs> There's a lot of volatility. I in the market. did. And... <laughs> Oh my gosh. I mean, I was talking to my dad about that, I think yesterday and he goes, you shouldn't have looked. And he goes, are you scared? And I was like, I guess not really. Cause everybody says it'll bounce back. Right. Well, this is, I think a really important discussion point to have right now. And, um, there may continue to be this volatility for a long time. And for us that have years and decades to keep working that we're really in the beginning of our career, we can withstand this volatility. Yeah. You know, and, and that, and that is, that is a piece of it. The other piece of it is understanding what's your risk tolerance. So, you know, we talked about time horizon. You and I have 40, 50 years of work left. Mm-hmm. Um, who knows? Maybe we never retire because we love what we do, but um, thinking about your risk tolerance. So if, if you look at your statement and you know, your account is down 25% and you can't sleep at night, then that probably tells you that you need to make some adjustments to your asset allocation. So how many stocks versus how many bonds that your portfolio is invested in. Gotcha. Um, so, so that's, it's a personal question and it's a question that us as financial planners get a lot and enjoy having these conversations, ideally having them before we're experiencing volatility. Yeah. Because you want your clients to feel comfortable and to be prepared so that they don't have that sleepless night because they opened their statement and, you know, they weren't, they, they didn't have what they needed to feel secure. Gotcha. Ultimately that's, Yeah. But, um, so circling back, you know, I think just saving early, saving often, 
uh, maybe separating, separating out some of those work expenses from your personal expenses. But I think it's really important to, to feel really comfortable with your monthly expenses, mm-hmm. especially um, now that you do have a house and you probably have some other goals um, to accomplish. There's a lot that happens in our 20s and 30s and there's lots of financial implications of all that too. But ultimately, I think you're doing a great job. Thanks. Yeah. Here's another question saving. for you. What do you yeah. think about Bitcoin? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So the way I'm going to answer this is by starting with the fact that I am a conservative person. I naturally lean towards um, being more conservative and Bitcoin is not something that I've put a whole lot of energy into understanding. So there, there's kind of two pieces though. There's Bitcoin and then there's the blockchain. Mm-hmm. Um, so are you familiar with the difference? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So Bitcoin is, you know, really just a currency using the blockchain. The blockchain right. I think has a lot of applications that will become really valuable over time. Bitcoin, I would just uh, hold off. <laughs> I, it's, you know, and it goes back to your risk tolerance, as we were yeah. talking about before. And my risk tolerance is fairly low um, for my age. So, but if a client came to me and, you know, said, I really want to invest in Bitcoin and it was money that they could lose and it not impact their life, mm-hmm. then that's a decision that, you know, my job is here. I'm here to support you. And what you want, what makes you happy, what brings nourishment and value to your life. Not here to judge based on how you should spend your money. I think this is super awesome. I think, uh, you know, having all these different kinds of people on here are going to be really fun to hear their stories. And um, I think in some ways we're probably more similar than we think. And then in other ways, we're obviously trying to always learn from each other. So, Absolutely. I completely agree with that. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and being vulnerable and sharing your story. I think it's going to really help our listeners. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. If this is your first time joining us, welcome to the Rise Up Tribe. If you're a regular here, thanks so much for listening. You're a valued member of our community. If you'd like to come on the show, Google This American Wallet, which will take you to the podcast page of our website here at Rise Up Financial. Until next time, be kind and save money.